0: So your main type, like, and really what defines your main type, uh, when, when you take a test or when you do an Enneagram typing interview is they really want to get at what your childhood wounds were, what your core fears are, uh, the things that make you close up versus open up, uh, the things that you've used and you've used rightly to protect yourself because, we all have to create ways to protect ourselves as children. Some some have better childhoods than others. Some have really rough ones. But regardless, even if you grow up in the best family with, uh, with the best parents and the best situation financially, you're still living with other people. And those people have their core fears and their core wounds. And as you grow up, you learn that you have to manage yourself to get by. And these are the things that you use to manage yourself to get by.
1: Today, we're focusing on an ancient personality map called the Enneagram. My guest Hannah explains the system to us, and we go over the nine personality types, so listen carefully to find out which type you could be. If you've been enjoying this podcast and want to invite even more magic into your life, or support my podcast and me in general, Consider signing up to the Aquarium Plus for only $5 a month. Click on Explore the Aquarium Plus to check out all of the offerings you'll receive as a member. And now, on to the episode. Hannah McElroy is a native New Yorker who has lived in Seattle, Washington for over 30 years. She and her husband have owned two used bookstores, Magus and Magus Annex, in the city for over 20 years. Hannah began reading tarot as a young teen in Manhattan, providing readings from the apartment she shared with her mother. About 10 years ago, the subject of the Enneagram piqued her interest, and she began her studies primarily from the teaching perspective of Beatrice Chestnut. When she relaunched her formal tarot business a couple of years ago, She became fascinated with the intersections of tarot and Enneagram and decided to focus her practice in this way. Hannah offers Enneagram typing interviews, tarot readings from an Enneagram viewpoint, workshops on a variety of topics, and writes a widely read weekly substack newsletter, Explorations on the Tarot Journey. Hello, Hannah. Thank you so much for joining the show today.
0: Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here.
1: So you are an Enneagram and a tarot reader, and we talk a lot about tarot on this podcast. So my first question is, why the Enneagram out of, say, Myers-Briggs or human design?
0: Well, I think that all three of those modalities have value. Enneagram just really spoke to me because it is a system of consciousness raising. It's a psychological system. There's a magical aspect to it that you're definitely not getting from a Myers-Briggs analysis. I don't actually know too much about the human design, but it spoke to me and it seemed to me that it really was a way to understand more than anything, how we were affected as children and how that made us who we are and gave us our struggles and made things challenging and how we address those challenges and sort of in, in sort of a spiritual personality development that then as we got older, whether we dealt with our issues or didn't deal with our issues, sort of addressed how far along we could come in in terms of
1: like Enneagram development, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. So what drew you specifically? Is there something about your childhood that it helped? Or was there a a moment that somebody introduced it to you? And then you just sort of latched on,
0: yeah. So I, it must have been about 10 years ago that I had a friend who was, uh, really interested in Enneagram. And I'm a, a student and a, a learner. And uh, I own a couple of bookstores and I'm always just looking for, you know, new material, new reading. And I just kind of latched onto it and I realized that there was a ton to it. And, uh, not unlike tarot, there are different schools of thought. I really was interested in understanding what kind of core fears I had and figuring out what type I was. And ironically, I saw myself as a type three for a number of years. And a type three is called the achiever, somebody who's extremely interested in how they're perceived by others and their success is perceived by others. And ultimately, though, it didn't feel like perfectly right. And I, and I had a typing interview with the guys who run God, what is the name of their, their, I think that they're called the, the Enneagram pathways. And anyway, I talked to this guy and he actually was an Enneagram eight. And he, after talking to me was like, you are absolutely an eight and eights and threes are similar. They are similar, except eights just don't. They don't get as much of their validation from the outside. Their validation comes more from inside. And what I also realized through going through that was that my dad is definitely a three. I come from a a family of artists in New York. My dad is a novelist. My mother was an artist and there was everything in our house was to do with achievement and outside recognition and who you are is you know, your last best review. And so as a kid coming up, that was how I got, you know, my pats on the back was from bringing home straight A's or creating this or creating that. And so what I realized was that really it was my dad who was the three, but ultimately all the things that I dealt with growing up uh, being extremely strong and as a female being really strong, being a leader, uh, wanting to protect safety being a real big issue. Growing up in New York City in the 80s, not being not being really disciplined very much. Uh, I, in fact, I would, I did whatever I wanted to. There was definitely that sort of like need to keep myself safe in the streets kind of thing. And so anyway, it's like the evolution of me figuring out what my own type was. And then I, I led a class with a bunch of people and we all worked on their types. And then I taught a class and then I, I, I just joined different societies. And then I realized that, wow, it's like understanding someone's type from an Enneagram perspective can give such a great insight into a tarot reading. And what I also realized, it's like nobody else was really doing that. Not to say that that in astrology readings and tarot readings, Enneagram doesn't come up. But for me, especially when I first meet with somebody, if they know their Enneagram type, that's amazing because that just gives me A clue in. And when I was first thinking about it, I was like, well, is that kind of cheating? And it's like, no, that's not cheating at all. It's just information as a basis to get started. And then just the modalities work together so well. And it's so interesting from a psychological perspective, but because I also look at Enneagram as a spiritual practice, because we really do have all the types in us. And we aren't just one type, it's all the types it's just a really great tool to work together.
1: I love that. I think that's so great that you saw what your dad was and probably why you thought you were that way. And then you found out that you're an eight, but like you could see why you thought you were a three. And I don't think that's cheating at all. I think one of the things that we talk about on this show a lot is that tarot is a great modality on its own, but it's a, such a wonderful compliment when you find other things that feel, that kind of fill in so much more of the gap where I think tarot can be, you know, like a lot of beautiful artistic paintings that you look at and get all sorts of intuition and guides and impressions from it. But when you add it to something else, it almost like makes it flower, I think. Um, And not that you have to do that, but if there is something else you really like, tarot could be something that you can either combine or just use on the side. So I think that's a, I'm really glad you said that because I think a lot of people think that it's cheating, you know, or that there's some kind of, you know, rule, you know, instilled in tarot that now it's like, well, now I'm not working because you put me with the Enneagram. So I I think that's really great. You mentioned it a little bit, but the Enneagram is way older than I realized. Right, like how it's it's a pretty old system, right? I'm not saying ancient, but it's been around for quite a while, right? Oh, it's it's uh, back with the Egyptians. I'm not an
0: enneagram historical expert by any means, but the first time that we see the enneagram symbol is in ancient Egypt, and then it was brought forth with I don't know if you're familiar with Gurdjieff and the spiritualists Blavatsky and some of them. They went to Egypt, they brought it back, and that was in the 1800s in England. And so at the same, it's sort of interesting because at the same time that a lot of stuff is happening with tarot in the 1800s and early 1900s, there's all this stuff happening with the Enneagram and sort of a a system of development. And what's also interesting about the Enneagram is that there are Definitely schools of thought. So we had Gurdjieff and and Blavatsky. We also had Claudio Naranjo, who's a little bit later on. And we have the narrative tradition. There, there are a lot of different traditions and a lot of different schools within the Enneagram. I have looked at all of them. And the one that makes the most sense to me is the stuff that, that Beatrice Chestnut and Aranio Pais have been working on and it is psychological but it is also extremely spiritual beatrice chestnut is uh was and is a psychotherapist she was at stanford and uranio Pais is this sort of wild spiritual teacher and they are have this bizarre partnership that just works beautifully but he works very much kind of harkening back to the original spiritual ideas going all the way back to egypt and then beatrice is very much sort of like current modern and they work together really well so so yeah, so it's got a really long history, and actually a longer history than than the tarot.
1: You're exactly right. I was literally about to say, wow, they they found something from Egypt where all the tarot occultists wanted to find a tarot deck in Egypt, and they were like, well, we found this enneagram thing, and like then that blew up. And yeah, you're right. Tarot wanted that same flag from Egypt. But no, it did not come out of Egypt. It was a card game that then, you know, moved into something occult. And it it works wonderfully. It's just we don't need it to have such a mystical origin for it to not, you know, for it to work wonderfully. So let's go over the Enneagram types really quick, um, because they all sound like archetypes to me. So the perfectionist, the giver, the achiever, the individualist, the investigator, the skeptic, the enthusiast, the challenger, and the peacemaker, right? Nine Enneagram personalities. So is that kind of like looking at things sort of archetypally similar to the major arcana?
0: Yes, absolutely. And there are those people who have assigned a major arcana uh, to an Enneagram type. I don't know how on board I am with that, but there there is stuff out there that says, you know, the emperor is, um, I think the emperor is a three and uh, the magician is, you know, is a one, but I, I don't know if that make sense in some ways. It, it makes me feel like, you know, when you try to like make systems work together as like puzzle pieces in a perfect way. And I tend to, to look at things, I, I think more creatively and intuitively. And I don't need to put a type into a box, but. At the same time, from an archetypal perspective, and certainly from a Jungian perspective, and from if we think about Joseph Campbell and and uh, mythology, yes, the types are definitely archetypes. And uh, you know, for example, Type One is the perfectionist. Um, I'm married to a one, and uh, you know, they 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 really are constantly striving for uh, for perfection, which is. Uh, not attainable. And uh, at the same time, they're the people that you want, you know, with you, because they do the detail work, and they really make sure everything is as good as it's going to be. I always say in my house, it's like, I'm fine with an A minus. A minus is great, but I get a lot of shit done. And my husband, on the other hand, for him, it's like he'd rather work on one small project and have it be absolutely perfect. And if it takes them five years, so be it. So that's a great, like, that's what ones are like.
1: I haven't taken the test, but I've I've had a lot of people around me who love the Enneagram and I've listened to a lot of it. So I was like, I think I'm a five. I think I'm the investigator. Cause that's all I will um, research something until I don't even know what I'm researching anymore. And something they said about, Um, five investigators is that it's the research is so that the thing doesn't destroy me. And if that didn't like knock me back, maybe my mom is also a five. I might have the same kind of experience where I might be a different number, but I was exposed to a five growing up. But that's who she is. She will, everything is um, a heightened issue and she needs to understand how it works so that it doesn't harm everybody or so it doesn't harm herself or so, that, so there's some sort of like anxiety kind of feeling with it. I don't know if that's kind of the archetype of the investigator, but... Yeah,
0: I mean, the investigator uh, has so many wonderful things about about it, but where it can fall down, uh, people who are fives, um can't make a decision before they have all the information. And so. Oh my God, that's me. And the thing is, you're never going to have all the information. And so sometimes it can be a roadblock and, uh, it can be a roadblock to moving forward because there's that sense that if you just get that, that final article read or that final, um, whatever it is that then you'll have the information you need and everything will be fine. And, you know, we all know that that's not, that's not real. It's not right. So, but, but these are, you know, to, we talk about our shortcomings with the Enneagram, uh, you know, as an eight, I can steamroll people. I know, I know what everybody should be doing. Um, We need to move forward. We need to move forward quickly. And, uh, if we make a mistake, so what? It's all right. We're just, we're going. And yes, obviously you can see what a problem that can be for an eight because number one, not everybody wants to be steamrolled. And number two, uh, sometimes these mistakes could be bigger than, you know, you might like. So, uh, you know, the five though, what the five has to offer is, um, so much deep research and understanding and, um, really deep thinking. I mean, the, the five is the really deep, um, intellectual thinker and doesn't mind spending the time to really understand something. And so that, you know, when I think of the fives in my life, I mean, those are, you know, those are beautiful things. And it's like, the whole idea is that, you know, we all have shortcomings and then we all have virtues. And the idea is that, um, you know, we, we embrace and we elevate our virtues and we, we face our passions or our shortcomings like head on. We say, yeah, this is me. But the only way you can ever move past something is by facing it. So, um, so all the types, there are no good types. There are no bad types. All the types are, you know, full and rich and human. And, um, you know, if you look at all nine types, it's sort of
1: like that is humanity, at least in my mind. I love that. So then, what would be two? The giver is that um, a more maternal instinct, or is that yeah. a protective instinct? Yeah,
0: and that that's actually something pretty interesting. Um, women tend to be mistyped as twos more often than um, than men, obviously. And women, uh, they're they're less women eights. Uh, eight is considered to be a more masculine, uh, masculine. Uh, pushy, bossy, all these traditional, the traditional uh, buckets that we put men and women into and twos, the helper, Um, the helper, women tend to be mistyped, but there are a lot of female twos because a lot of women were brought up to, to, you know, keep their voices down, to just be there, to be on the sidelines, to be helping. And uh, where twos fall into trouble is because they feel like they get all of their validation out of helping people they can sometimes become a little bit manipulative with it um so they can sometimes uh use their helpfulness not out of you know sheer you know wish to be of assistance but actually because it gives them uh gives them their own personal value
1: i get that that's interesting i am um, and and like you said everybody has all of the enneagram numbers in them and i can definitely see where that would be a quality of me, though five, I think, is my number. But I can, you know, especially when it comes to relationships, we want to be able to pinpoint the reason that people love us, and to uh, be able to do that over and over again, so that we can continuously say, "Well, okay, this person loves me because I'm giving this person something, or I'm being, you know, accommodating in a lot of ways," and then to start manipulating that because it's almost like, well, you know, do you love me? Is this kind of real? Because it's built off of like, not necessarily real things, except like this imaginary exchange. So what if what's a three, the achiever? Oh, you said that's your dad. Everyone's focus has got to be on your achievements. And everybody's got to see your achievements. Like this is like the trophy parent. Like you said, I want to see a pluses everywhere. I want to see your book written and like posted everywhere. Or like, is that that kind of thing?
0: Yeah. And, you know, another point that I would make is that um, something that Beatrice Chestnut says is that, you know, so many of us are walking through life like zombies. And it's the idea that this is unconscious. This isn't like, I'm not trying to manipulate you. I'm not trying to make you feel that your value is only in getting A's. It comes from, you know, what, what they were taught and it's this sort of generational like generational trauma this the stuff we dump on our kids um, our own stuff so it none of it is done with this intention of hurting anyone else but it is when we can move from unconsciousness to consciousness, we can start to be more aware of it and more aware of um, how our behaviors towards other people can, you know, sometimes not be, uh, not be helpful. And it's that like kind of getting into becoming aware of where, where we fall down, then enables us to kind of heighten our consciousness, heighten our level of awareness, and ultimately to bring about change that makes us happier and the people around us.
1: So let's just go through the last three. We already talked about the five. Let's go through six, seven, and nine, just so that everybody listening, if they know their Enneagram type, they kind of get like a little bit of an understanding of it. So uh, five is me, the investigator. We talked about that already. So six is the skeptic. Then, so why is that? so that's interesting to me because the investigator and the skeptic kind of sound like similar archetypes. So, what's up with the six?
0: Yeah, and and two things I want to say quickly, and we'll come back to the four because the four would be so upset. The four compares I'm him or herself. The four. Yeah, and that I'm is so sorry, but that's <sighs> all about the four that. The four always gets skipped. The four never gets enough attention.
1: Oh the my four... goodness. The so four. I'm so sorry.
0: <laughs> the four compares itself to what other people have. You know, the four is artistic and, uh, moody and feels things, uh, more than other people. And, um, can, you know, it's that idea of like the, uh, the starving artist or, uh, they tend to be the most creative. Um, I have numerous friends who are fours and they're always, uh, wonderful and in pain. <laughs> and, uh, so that's very much the four, but that was just funny that you skipped it. Um, but the six, uh, people call that every system like has different titles for them. Um, but the, the six, when I think of the six, I think that there's just an undercurrent of anxiety. Um, there's worry, there's, uh, making sure the six needs to make sure that everything is okay all the time. The six needs to be prepared for all options. And the reason why the six is next to the five is because we have these things called wings on either side of us. So, um, If you are five, you lean more heavily on a six wing or on a four wing. And it sounds to me like maybe you would uh, lean more on a six wing. I'm not sure. But, um, the idea as we, the, if the idea is that we are going to ultimately encompass all of the types, how we begin to do that is by, looking at our wings on either side of us and figuring out which one we maybe lean into more than the other. Um, I'm an eight, but I definitely lean into my seven. The seven is the enthusiast, the optimist, the, um, the, you know, party girl. And that is definitely where I lean, uh, more than the nine who is, uh, more easygoing. But anyway, back to the six. So the six, um, is often called the loyalist. So the six is that friend that you want to have, um, who will always be on your side, who is always there for you, who always returns your phone call because they are devoted. And so that is like that. That's the the great part of sixes. It's like, once you've got a six, you always have your six friend. Um, and then I said, on the other side, you know, they do tend to be deeply anxious. Um, they have a lot of worry. And a lot of times that comes from in the childhood, perhaps not feeling um, secure or safe. So, so they've brought that through um, having to uh, where it relates to the five in terms of uh, decision-making and having to research things and uh, to make decisions that the six will um, it's more in a, like a planning way. So if they plan for all the possible um, bad things that can happen, the bad thing won't happen. So um, that is, you know, that's very
1: much like the six M.O. That sounds like my mom. That actually sounds more like my mom. That's very interesting. Because it does have that sort of, like you said, it's like, I feel like the the fives maybe have that need to research because it's like, I want that answer, you know, and there is the anxiety of, of not being able to find the answer, right? But then the loyalist, or sometimes called the skeptic, I guess, is uh, more of a person who's like, I need to have all of the answers so that I'm ready for any situation that's coming up. Like I need to like MacGyver at any point here to get out. Is that right?
0: Yes, that's absolutely right. And they're also who you want to have with you, you know, uh, well, you may or may not want to have them with you on a trip, but, uh, you know, they're the ones who are going to make sure that they've packed everything, uh, to make sure that, you know, in case anything happens, uh, they will have the extra toothbrush. They will have, uh, you know, multiple guidebooks uh, because, you know, maybe one won't have the right information for that hotel. Uh, so at the same time, they can be a huge problem to travel with because um, they're always worrying versus uh, think of them almost like living in the future um, versus really having a hard time um just being present you know being present in that moment and enjoying that garden or the way the flowers smell or um the boat ride or or just because they're thinking of okay well uh, yeah i'm doing this now but we got to make sure we know what's going to happen uh in an hour so
1: i love yeah. that that sounds like um that sounds like a i mean a generalized idea of like a dad mode you know it's like it's like i got to have my swiss army knife I've got to have my backup flash drive, even if we're going to nature. You know, it's right. so interesting. So the seven, then I have that it's the enthusiast. What's the other? Is there another word for it?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think the enthusiast is 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 really a really good way of describing um, describing the type seven. And it's funny because you know people do people do sort of latch on to good and bad types and it's like every, everyone wants to be a seven. Everybody wants to be the life of the party. And um, yeah, exactly. And uh, so, um, and I have uh, a couple of friends who are sevens and the seven is, is great, but where the six is living in the future, the seven is, doesn't really want to think about the future that much unless it's really shiny and pretty on the other side. So, so the seven is like living for today. Uh, let's enjoy what we have. The cup is half full. Um, it's never going to be empty. So don't worry about it. So that the seven has the capacity to, uh, put off things that are like unpleasant, like paying bills, like, uh, cleaning the bathroom, like, uh, you know, paying their taxes, maybe, um, because, you know, it's all going to be okay. And I just want to have fun. Um, all of these are way oversimplifications. But it's just like when I'm thinking of like that, that person, or like, in some ways, it's almost like a caricature of a person, but that's, that's who you would imagine.
1: Uh, Seven, that's the archetype, right? Exactly. That's what it is. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And um, sevens also can fall into, uh, into, addictions more easily force can also um but you know because there's that sense of of not worrying about the future not like taking care of oneself uh in any sense of of future planning just having fun for what fun is now um which is wonderful i mean people who actually live in the present i think tend to be little happier than those who are, uh, you know, agonizing about the past, which the fours can do, and worrying about the future, which is what the sixes can do. So there are wonderful things about the seven. But then, you know, as with everything, there can be challenges.
1: So you are an eight, and we talked a little bit about it. But eight is the, the challenger. Is that right? Eight? And um, you were saying it's a person who can take charge, a person who can potentially steamroll, but it may be because they know what's right or they, they have the uh, exactly how they want to see it and we don't need to see it another any other way. Like you can go do this, 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 very delegating kind of experience.
0: Yeah, the eight is also called the protector. And um, so the eight is somebody who uh, is a strong leader, knows you know knows what needs to be done when it needs to be done is also somebody who is very concerned with taking care of the underdog of making sure that those people who are not um as strong perhaps are are taken care of so the people that they are loyal to they will fight uh you know till the death and as the mom of two boys who are now in their 20s I'll tell you if anybody screwed with my kid they were in Massive trouble. So that's an area, you know. When I was in my 30s, as a young mom, or you know, I guess my late 20s, early 30s, um, I didn't have as much self-control as I would have now. So that's some place that I've really evolved and grown. And so I would kind of like go off, um, you know, if if somebody's uh, not treating somebody that I care about uh, with with, you know, uh, respect and consideration, I would just like go after them. Part of that is also that I'm a native New Yorker and I grew up in New York and, you know, in the streets and that's, that's like kind of my go-to, uh, so the combination and, and you can say, does the cart become before the horse? Who knows? Is it, you know, growing up in New York in the kind of situations that I grew up in that made me more eight like, uh, possibly, um, you know, it, maybe I would have turned out different if I'd been brought up on, you know, like a little farm and I don't know, uh, Kansas or somewhere. It probably would have been a little different. But I do believe that uh, there is nature and nurture and that I do believe that we are born with a certain, um, a certain self sense. And then that's either nurtured and developed and grown or um, sometimes bad things happen to us. But I do think that there's sort of an innate uh, type that we come into this world in. I don't think that it's all based upon uh how we were brought
1: up. Nine is the peacemaker. Is that kind of like a pacifist in a way or somebody who well goes with the flow, but maybe um goes with the flow because they don't want to cause any disruption or they don't want to ma- upset anyone? Is that kind of how it, it it means as like a peacemaker?
0: Yeah. Um yeah, they can Uh, their uh, vice is sloth. Um, Each of the types has a vice that's attached to it and um, they can be a little lazy. Uh, The idea of dealing with conflict is not pleasant for them. And so going with the flow, being more easygoing, uh, sitting back, letting other people do the talking um, that is, one of the ways that they sort of manage through their world. Um, on the other hand, uh, everybody loves a nine because, you know, they're so, they agree with you. They're so easy to get along with. They're chill. Uh, they're, they tend to not be like massive energy. Uh, and, uh, they are really good friends and they're really devoted. And, um, I mean, it's like sometimes people think of, uh, you know, Gandhi as, as a nine perhaps, but, um, but I would argue that he leaned very heavily on his eight wing because he was a powerful leader at the same time. So, and a, a lot of times people do say, you know, Obama was an eight or, you know, different, they assign different celebrities and, you know, that's neither here nor there.
1: I love that. And you've been bringing up wing a lot. So out of, just out of curiosity with, you know, I, I, I understand what you mean by leaning, uh, on to the other number, but a wing is always the number b- before and after. So if I'm a five, my wing would be four or six. Is that right? Exactly. Exactly. Wings are always on
0: either side of you, and then um if you look at an enneagram uh, diagram, you will see that every type has a growth arrow and an opportunity arrow. So again, this is a way of it. it Sounds a little complex. It, I guess it could be a little bit complex if you're not familiar with it. But again, this is a way that we expand our type to not just be our type, but we have, um, other, other types that we are closest to. So as an eight, when, um, when I am in, um, a space of opportunity where things are challenging for me. I go to five and five is where I will, um, I will dig in deep. I'm going to get all the information I need. I'm going to throw that information at you. Uh, I, I will have. All my ducks in a row and I will conquer. And that, you know, but I will use information to do that. And so that's when I'm not looking my prettiest. That's uh, not my best day. My best day is a, a growth opportunity. It's, I mean, my where I'm growing and developing and learning is when I go to two. And you'll see on the Enneagram diagram, you can see at each point there are two lines that kind of go off. And so when I'm my best, um, I'm leaning on on the all these two elements, these like helping people. Protecting people, um, you know, using my strength and my my leadership qualities uh, for the good, for to help to help other people to um, to to make them feel safe and secure, and uh, and you know, it's sort of like your best self. Um, so, as a, let me just grab this here for a second. So, as a five. Um, you would go to eight and to seven. And so your growth opportunity would be um, to come out a little bit more, you know, to be a little bit more in your face. And the seven is uh, the enthusiast. And so it's kind of interesting, because the five can be an introvert, the five really can. Uh, especially after getting a lot of energy from the outside world, it's like, that the five is fine being alone in their house for like a week like it's cool like i'm i'm good you know and so i'm alone with
1: my research that i am never alone i have so much research i have to do that actually everyone is taking up my time and I I need to help people like if you want to be my friend I love you to death but you've got to be okay with the fact that I am introverted and I you might not see me for weeks if not months like it's, it has nothing to do with my feelings or love for you I will show up at your birthday if there is like a big event I'm going to be there but I I have got to be in my own mind I have to go away I have to and wait so are you saying my growth would be eight or my growth would be seven.
0: In fact, your, your growths and your opportunities can be, can be both of those. But what I see more than anything is that the seven and the eight are both extroverts for the most part, Um, not all the time, but God, when you just said, um, when you just said you're, you're taking advantage of my time, that is like Uranio Pius, he is a five and he says that all the time. He's just like and he is such a five. And he's uh he says, you know, basically like if I'm giving you my time, like that's a gift because
1: it's most- precious, okay? Precious. Like I am literally, I am going, okay. You cannot ask we cannot solidify plans until at least 24 if not three hours before because I have to make sure I want to go and if I make sure I go then either like you know, what are those memes where it's like um if you cancel on me don't worry at all and then you see somebody in the bed like you know like reading or watching so that's me like if you cancel that's actually probably even better for me or if you're like can we just facetime I'm like yes let's a facetime like I so get that but the seven and eights I'm in life path eight so, I think that's super interesting that both of those are growths and opportunities. Yeah. So, seven on my way here before we started this conversation, I'm thinking in my head, I'm like, you have got to have more fun, girl. Like, you do not let yourself, like, I used to be much more, not out, I might be more outgoing, maybe not more extroverted, but more outgoing. And I would, you know, um, people would invite me to a party and I'd go or I won't go, but I would be the life of the party when I'd go. And then I can slip back into my introversion for weeks, but I don't even let myself do that now. And I'm like, man, you just do not have any fun anymore. So is that kind of like uh, the growth opportunity with seven, even if it's extroverted? It's like, just have some fun. <laughs> like, stop being so serious all of the, all the time. Absolutely.
0: I mean, I I think that, you know, fives entertain themselves really well. <laughs> They're their best friend. And, yes. yes. And <laughs> I... <so> <laughs> And I just, I do think that, uh, you can get a lot from other people and, um, it is sometimes it, it's interesting that you say that you're the life of the party when you do go to the party, because, uh, if I remember correctly, you used to be in acting and obviously, you know, you, you can perform well and I don't know you or what's going on in your life necessarily, but that might, um, I don't know, it, it might be that there's time that, you need to take for connection and for communication and for, you know, sorry. You're so right.
1: No, you're so right. No, you're so right. It's so funny you're even saying that because as I was walking here, that's all the stuff I was saying in my mind. I'm just like, you have got to – Find a better balance between how much you obsess over research or over understanding things and how much you just let that leave your mind and you just communicate like you don 't even have to talk about any of the things that you're researching there's so many things other people want to talk about you you don't even have to open your mouth if you don't want to you know it's like you can connect and just have a more topical present conversation or just, you know, be uh, an ear to one of my friends or anyone that, you know, I'm having that connection with. And that's just as fine as, say, being the life of a party or something, you know. But isn't there also a weakness uh, or is there a – there's a stress- one as well, right? When, when the, uh, what your numbers, you know, there's arrows all over the Enneagram. I'm I'm trying to say it, uh, through audio and I'm trying to have people visualize the Enneagram, but it's like, it's a circle with arrows pointing everywhere. And I know that there's, uh, an arrow pointing to the stressor number as well. That's, I, I don't remember what that one's called, but I know that was, yeah, the growth opportunity and stress. What's the stress? Yeah.
0: So, Okay, so the, the, I'm going to throw a little bit of a curveball here. Um, so as I said, Enneagram is sort of a, a developing um, – it's a developing tool. And so for the past like three decades, uh, Russ Hudson, who uh, ran the Enneagram Institute, he still runs the Enneagram Institute. He is sort of like the gold standard of, of Enneagram stuff. That's where like if you're going to go take a test, uh, you go to the Enneagram Institute and pay your 12 bucks and take a test. Anyway, um, he and his group were all about, uh, you have one line to stressor and one line to growth. And so, you know, you have the, the, the place you go when, when you're basically an asshole and the place you go when you're like mother Teresa. So that was that. But then, uh, Beatrice Chestnut and Arania Pais came out with a new book two years ago and they, Made a change. And it's not to say that they're right and Russ is wrong, or, but it to me, it spoke to the kind of over encompassing view of the Enneagram. They say that you can actually go to growth or to stress to both numbers. So when, for example, if you're a five, um, you could go to eight and be take some, take some leadership, get out there, uh, show your strength in a really positive way. Or you could get so stressed out that maybe you as a five are like, I have all the information, uh, don't need you right now. That's fine. I got it. Um, the seven, for example, you could go and be the life of a party and have a great time and be so funny and awesome. Um, or maybe you have too many glasses of wine. Um, so it's you know, so it's the idea that okay, we have our wings; we could lean on both of our wings. We have our stressors and our growth; um, we can lean on both of those. Next thing you know, you have your core type, but you have four other types that are in your sort of like your uh, your bubble, your your spirit that are more uh, things that that you're you're touching on more than maybe the other types.
1: And is that you said this in the beginning? Um, is that like your core fear? Like I know core is like a big word in the Enneagram. Like core is used a lot. But yeah, explain that part to me.
0: <laughs> yeah. So your main type, like, and really what defines your main type uh, when when you take a test or when you do an Enneagram typing interview um, is they really want to get at like what, I mean, what your childhood wounds were, what your core fears are, uh, the things that make you close up versus open up. Uh, the things that you've used and you've used rightly to protect yourself, because we all have to create ways to protect ourselves as children. Some some have better childhoods than others, some have really rough ones. But regardless, even if you grow up in the best family with uh with the best parents and the best situation financially, you're still living with other people. And those people have their core fears and their core wounds. And as you grow up, you learn that you have to manage yourself to get by. And these are the things that you use to manage yourself to get by. And uh it's uh, my mother. I, I don't know what she was. Uh She but I believe that she was a for uh, she was an artist. She she had clinical depression and it was untreated because in there was a lot in those days um about not going on medication and about just kind of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and, you know, just make the best of it. And I do feel like if she'd been medicated, she might have, she might have done better, but, um, but ultimately, you know, I had to, to learn how to be safe with a mother who I couldn't necessarily predict whether she would be horribly down or be the life of the party, because when she was the life of the party, she was amazing. Um, so it's all these things that we just, as kids, we just have to figure out about the people we're living with. And those are kind of how our, our core fears and wounds develop.
1: I love that. Now we're going to move to tarot, because I, I want to see how you work all this in. And thank you so much for explaining that, you know, there's so obviously so much more to the Enneagram. Like you said, there's even more numbers involved and all of us have all of it in us. So thank you for breaking that down so well for us to kind of get it. So before we start talking about tarot, I think I read in your about me that your mom was the one that introduced you to tarot. Is it, is that the connection that you have with her in that way?
0: Yeah. I mean, like i said i grew up in in this house full of uh artists and musicians and writers and and she had a writer weight smith deck that she kept in this box which i actually have over here on my altar and uh ironically uh so that the the cards were there she would pull a card here or there but she was not a tarot reader um and I, the cards did not speak to me. That deck, which I now use all the time, um, in those days, the Rider Waite Smith deck, just the, the, uh, the, um, iconography, the, the depictions, they just didn't speak to me. And, um, I was really just, Fascinated with tarot, I don't know where it came from. I don't know necessarily how it evolved, Um, but I got my hands on an Aquarian deck, and um, the Aquarian deck, which is uh, kind of like so '70s, so '70s New York. And I actually have one. I was looking at decks. I've got one here. So the the deck I started reading with when I was about 14 years old was the Aquarian deck. And again, it's like it's funny. I don't know if I don't. Know exactly how it all happened. um, except my parents were very open. Uh, really to anything I wanted to do. So I'm sure what happened was I said, I'm going to start reading tarot cards. And I, I sure I got a book and I remember doing Celtic cross spreads. Like I remember only doing Celtic cross spreads as a teenager. And, um, and people would come to the house and I would do these readings. I mean, I was like a teenager and I was totally, I mean, in, in retrospect, in, in some ways, I think I was just completely, you know, making things up. However, there was this intuition that was there. I I can't explain it. And it wasn't, there was some reason why people were wanting to come and see like a a 14 or 15 year old. And uh, it wasn't like there was a line out the door, but it was like there, I was regularly reading cards and uh, I don't remember like really knowing what the three of wands was or really knowing what the Knight of pentacles was. I just sort of looked at them and said some stuff. And again, I'm quite old at this point. So this is like decades ago, but that was, that was that. And that, um, that pretty much ended by the time I went to college. And then I didn't pick up cards again for a long time. Um, And, it's only been in the past, again, about 10 years that I've been back back into the cards. But those sort of memories of, I remember somebody bringing a carrot cake to the house as payment for a tarot reading when I was like, you know, 15. It was just like, it, it's, it was an interesting time.
1: I think that's great. I mean, if you're going to start out, it's like to be young and just have fun and just enjoy doing it. You know, I think I my first deck was the Aquarian deck. So I, and, and I um, stopped uh using it for a very long time for my own reasons and then came back to it. I was doing psychic stuff but like it was it was hard to continue doing it if if when you you know you grow up a little bit and you're like well it should make sense in this way and it should make sense in that way and it just stops being fun. You know, and then you kind of have to either go professional, or otherwise people just won't stop coming to you. Like, <laughs> and so you, like it's one or the other. You know, you got to either take the leap, or you're okay with always, you know, being that for other people. So I completely relate to that. Um, so when now, you know, using it alongside the Enneagram, what is your favorite way to use it? Is it through? Do you make spreads that work with the Enneagram, or is it the actual cards that you use with the Enneagram? Um, honestly, the way that I use the Enneagram with tarot is... If you'd like to hear the rest of this episode, you can stream it using the link below. If you'd like to listen to all full episodes, past, present, and future, receive monthly readings, discounts on tarot readings from me, participate in exclusive giveaways, and more, join The Aquarium Plus for only $5 a month. Thank you so much for spending your time with me, and I hope to see you at the next episode. Blessed be.